All right, you guys open up Romans chapter 8. We will be tonight in verse 28. And we will not go any further than verse 28. We're going to see that verse 28 uh, probably has enough in it for us to to chew on for the next several months, maybe even years. But we're going to be talking about, as we have been talking about, sanctification. We're going in, in the Spirit's role in, in the fact that He indwells us as believers, um, sanctifying us through His power. We're going to see that the Spirit gives us confidence, and it gives us great confidence as we are walking through this progressive sanctification, looking forward, of course, as we remind each other each week to that glorification that we will have in Christ. Uh, we are going to see that as born-again uh, believers, people who are saved, spirit-indwelt, children of God, all those things that we have talked about that we, we are because of Christ, um, we're going to learn this week that we can live our lives in great confidence because of what Christ has done for us. And so, this verse is going to begin tonight um, with a conjunction and then a great statement of confidence. Uh, that great statement of confidence is, we know. Uh, we know. Not, not that uh, we think or perhaps or maybe or possibly, but a great statement of confidence, we know. Or we see that we know, as I said, we see a conjunction. And Donald Barnhouse, who wrote a great commentary on um, Romans, actually four volumes just on Romans, um, he, he identifies it, it correctly, in my opinion, to take the and that we're going to see there in verse, in verse 28, and to remind us that that and is a conjunction that is going to join us with everything that we have been studying about sanctification. But we know last week we talked about suffering. And he is going to join suffering, which we know is a part of our sanctification. I hope you know that at this point in time. To, to remove suffering from Christianity is to not have biblical Christianity. He's going to use that word and as that thing that ties it together. Then, right after that, and we know. We're going to see it's important that we understand the structure of that and why it's laid out. And that's what we're going to see today. So we start Romans chapter 8, verse 28, and it says, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love Him, who have been called according to His purpose. Now before we get into what this does say, I want to tell you what it does not say. Um, because it's misused, it's mishandled, it's misquoted. It does not say that if you're in Christ, everything's going to be good. Uh, it couldn't happen. That's why I wanted you to see the importance of the connection to everything that we've read up until this point. We just read about suffering. So put it in its proper context. Suffering is not good. Anybody here say, ooh, I want to volunteer for the next suffering that I can endure. No, suffering is not good. We don't like suffering. We have to endure suffering. We have to persevere through suffering. That's why we learned last week that the Spirit is groaning on our behalf. Why? Because sometimes we don't know how to even groan. We don't even know how to pray. So suffering is real. 
What it's not saying, it's not saying there's going to be an absence of suffering and that if you're a believer, that everything in your life is just going to be peachy and rosy and everything's going to work out the way that you intended for it to work out and everything's going to be great and grand and, and you're going to be rich and you're going to be healthy and you're going to drive a Cadillac Escalade with a, with a license plate that says, I tithe and everything's going to be okay. That's not the message of Christianity at all. That's not the message that Paul taught or preached. That's not the message that Christ taught or preached. He does not tell us and He is not promising us that everything is going to go smoothly in this life. So do not, for any reason, interpret that verse as everything's going to work out for the way I want it to work out good according to my definition of good. Because if you do, you're going to be dreadfully let down by misinterpretation of the Scripture. So now we know that uh, now we know what it doesn't say and what it doesn't mean. We're going to talk extensively about what it does mean. And what it is, it is a Scripture that gives us great assurance, great security, and great confidence in some things. And we're going to talk about all those things. If you have your outline, you're looking along, you see what we're going to discuss. We're going to discuss confidence in God's providence, confidence in God's power, confidence in our position, and confidence in God's calling and purpose. We're going to break that down. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love Him, who have been called according to His purpose. And we know. Confidence. I want you to leave here tonight with the confidence of knowing that no matter what happens, you can trust and you can have confidence in these things. The first thing, confidence in God's providence. He says, in all things, God works. We can know that in all things, God works. He's talking about the sovereign, unseen hand of God. The sovereign, unseen hand of God. The hand that is working when you have no clue that He's working until you read things like this that says, I can know that in all things He's working. His providence is working in the good and the bad. The unseen hand of God leading, directing, guiding, and orchestrating every single element, watch this, of every single thing. We can know, we can confidently know that the unseen sovereign hand of God is working to achieve His will, His providence, His decrees, His decisions, His plans. He is working in every single situation. I know it's easy for us to really just embrace that when it's working out the way we want it to work out. Oh, I saw God move. It was glorious. I got erased. It's not very often that we say, man, when I got laid off today, I'm content with that. Because the unseen hand of a sovereign God saw that I was laid off today. He made it happen. And I'm going to praise Him for it. In the midst of, maybe I don't like this situation. I'm going to praise Him that He is sovereign over all things. 
I'm going to have confidence in His providence. Confidence in the fact that though this is not what I wanted, though this is not what I like, it is God's providence for my life. I can assure you of this, when you gain confidence in God's providence, your whole life is going to change. Horatius Bonner, the Scottish poet and hymn writer, he wrote a line, and it said this, it said, Thy way, not mine, O Lord, however dark it be, lead me by thine own hand, choose out the path for me. Where would we be as Christian brothers? Where would we be as individual Christians? Where would we be as a church? If that was our heart, that your unseen, sovereign, providential hand leads us. And if it leads us even into the dark places, we rejoice in the fact that you chose out the path for us, even if it's not the path that we want, the path that I want. We can still have confidence in the providence of God, no matter what, in all things. That means this, every situation. In every situation, He is sovereignly in control. Did you know this? If there's one situation that he is not in control of, one, he's not sovereign. And the whole Bible is not true. If you believe in the God of, of the Scriptures, you believe that he is sovereignly in control of all things. Matthew chapter 10, verse 28. It says this, Do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Verse 29 says, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from the will of your Father. And even their very, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Some of you don't have to count that high. Some of you, you have to count a little higher. Some of you, you have to be able to count in gray. He goes on and says, 31, So don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. He says there's not a sparrow, not a little bird, a little insignificant bird that falls to the ground without the Father's will. That is His providence. When we see that sparrow fall to the ground, it was the will of God and His sovereignty that allowed that sparrow to fall to the ground. And He says, and if He's in charge of the sparrows, how much more are you worth? His child, His Son in Christ. How much more are you worth than that little bird? He says all things here, God works. The good things, the bad things, in every situation, He is sovereignly in control. What comfort and what peace can we have from that when we really grasp that? I believe this. I believe there's many divisions in evangelicalism today because we have a poor definition of the sovereignty of God. The accurate scriptural definition of the sovereignty of God is in every situation He is in complete sovereign control. There is nothing that is out of His control. In every circumstance, He's sovereignly working. Just as in every situation, He's sovereignly in control. In every circumstance, He is sovereignly working. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11. We've read it many times, in the, even in this study. It says, In Him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of Him who works out everything. How many things? Everything in conformity with His purpose. His purpose of His will. He works out everything in conformity with the purpose of His will. In every situation, He's sovereignly in control. And in every circumstance, He's sovereignly working. He is working out everything 
in conformity with His will. That means this. Nothing has happened, nothing will happen, and nothing can happen that He does not sovereignly allow to happen or cause to happen. In every situation, He's sovereign. He's in control. In every circumstance, He's sovereignly working. You can know this. Even though you can't see Him working, right now He's working. Right now He is working for His glory. We're going to see in a moment, not only that, for the good. But He's working. Every situation, He's sovereign and in control. Every circumstance, He's sovereignly working. Every circumstance and detail of your life, He is involved in. He says, in all things, not only does that mean he's working in every situation sovereignly and in control in every circumstance, sovereignly working it for his will and conformity to what he desires. All things also means this, to the greatest level or degree. Even suffering and even in death, he's working. In all things, he is sovereignly achieving his purpose and will behind the scenes. And guess what? You might not know it. But you know what else? He didn't have to check with you. Aren't you thankful that He didn't have to check with us? Uh, I would have messed it up a long time ago. I'm thankful that I serve a God who doesn't have to check with the things that He created. That would make Him a weak, impotent God. But I serve a God who is sovereign and He reigns over all, not some of the time, all of the time. So we see the term all things. We can include all things, our trials, our struggles, persecutions, famines, pandemics, plagues, times of blessing, times of loss, times of failure, times of sin, times of triumph, and on and on and on and on. He is sovereignly working by His unseen hand according to what He has already declared and decreed in eternity past. Psalm 121. Verse 1, the psalmist says this. He said, I lift up my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? We love that part. Let's read the rest of it. My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. He will not let your foot slip. He who watches over you will not slumber. Indeed, he who watches over Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. While you are exhausted, while you are sleeping, he is Awake and alive and well, and He is sovereignly working out everything for His good pleasure and His perfect will. I like the God of Scriptures when I read about Him in this context because, again, He is not the weak gods of the pagans. He is supreme, sovereign God of all. He is Jehovah of the Scriptures who we read about from Genesis who we continue to read about all the way to the Revelation. Not one situation in your life, not one situation in my life, not one is void of His providential involvement. Not one single thing you go through. Not heartache, not pain, not rejoicing, not celebration. Not one single thing is void of His providential involvement. And the Holy Spirit gives us as believers great confidence and trusting in the providence of God. Many times in our Christian lives, we don't even realize it. 
we'll get that news where it seems like life is about to fall apart. And then internally, through the power of the Holy Spirit, if you've been there, you can nod your head. Internally, you can say amen if you want to. If you say hallelujah, somebody's going to mistake you for a Pentecostal, and they might ask that you leave. But you've been in those circumstances where you didn't know what you were going to do because whatever news, whatever trial you were going through knocked you off of your feet. Hopefully it knocked you to your knees. But the Holy Spirit in that moment, and this is what, what, where we as Christians can have great confidence because He always does this for those of us who know Him who are indwelt by His Spirit. Immediately, the Holy Spirit gives us the peace that surpasses all understanding. And why does He give us that peace? What, where does that peace come from? He points us to the providence of God. Uh, we, we say terms like this. These, these are not biblical terms, but biblical principles. God's got this. God's in control. I got nothing to worry about. My God's on the throne. Those things come from the indwelling Holy Spirit who reminds us of that, giving us great confidence in the providence of our great God. So we see that the Spirit in the sanctification process is giving us confidence continually in God's providence. Secondly, we know this, that He's giving us confidence in God's power. Let's read that verse again. And we know that in all things, God works for the good. For the good. I told you this verse does not say all things are good. If all things were already good, well, we wouldn't really need God's supernatural power to work them for the good. Some things are bad. Sin in this world, the trials of this world, the struggles of this world, the persecutions of this world, those things are bad. But our sovereign God can do this. He can take a bad thing, and He can work it for the good. And the Spirit is constantly reminding us of God's power to work all things for good. Work all things for good. God has the power to take the worst situation that we can even think of, death itself. Because let's be honest, everybody here in your humanity, your greatest fear is the death of yourself or the death of a loved one. But we can, through the power of the Holy Spirit, as He confirms to us over and over again, we can have confidence in God's power to make even the bad work for the good. doesn't mean we say, ooh-wee, I like it when I hurt and lose something that I love. No, but I love God, and I know God, and I know this, that this situation, though it is a bad situation, that I do not enjoy, God is working it for the good. Here's the good news about this. One day when we are glorified and we are in His presence, we will know exactly why and exactly how He worked all those things for the good and for His glory. We, we need confidence, and we receive that confidence from His Holy Spirit in regard to His power. He's working all things for the good. God is power, powerfully behind the scenes, always working all things to the good. Taking the situations that we don't like, we don't enjoy, that are bad, that are even awful, working them for good. Uh, it reminds me, and I know it will remind you when I reference this, of the story of Joseph. We see that in the latter part of Genesis, but Genesis chapter 50. 
we, saw, we see all of this kind of come to a head in verse 15. Joseph, we know, mistreated by his brothers, sold into slavery, faked his death, lied to their father. Joseph went through many trials and many hardships in his life. It seemed like every time it looked like Joseph's life was going to work out in a, in a way that was going to be uh, pleasing to him, something else would happen. He, he gets promoted to being a friend of Pharaoh, and the next thing you know, Pharaoh's wife makes a move on him. He rejects Pharaoh's wife, and the next thing you know, he goes from the palace to the prison. God works it out somehow through His providence because He works all things to the good. He goes back to the palace somehow. Isn't it interesting that that, that happens? When you have time, read the whole story. If you've never read the whole story, I don't have time to tell you tonight. I hope I can get out of here in an hour or two. But the thing is, we know this. At the end of the story, if you're familiar with the story of Joseph, it goes like this in verse 15 of chapter 50 of Genesis. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, what if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him? They knew they did him wrong. Is that a good situation? I mean, could you imagine? I promise you this, if Joseph would have had it when he got placed in that cart and they hauled him off and sold him into slavery, he probably wouldn't have been quoting at the top of his lungs, Romans 8.28. At that point in time, he probably didn't understand what in the world was going on. He was probably just a young man. His brothers were jealous of him. They did him wrong. They were thinking in this moment, if you remember the story, they were thinking that the only reason that he's being nice to us is because our father. That's the only reason that he's showing us grace and mercy. But that wasn't the only reason that he was showing them grace and mercy. He was showing them grace and mercy because he knew the God of grace and mercy. So they sent word to Joseph saying, your father left these instructions before he died. These connivers, here they go again. This is what you are to say to, jo to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and the wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. Now please forgive the sins of the servants of, of the God of your father. When their message came to him, Joseph wept. It's interesting. I don't know if Joseph wept because he really thought that that was from his father. He wept because his brothers were scheming again. Really don't know. His brothers then came and threw themselves down before him. We are your slaves, they said. But Joseph said to them, and here's the important part that I want you to see. Don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? Joseph was not in a position to exercise God's judgment. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. He said, what you intended for harm, God worked for the good. All the while, when all the bad things were happening to Joseph and, and all the events were taking place and all the details that we can read in retrospect, while all those things were going on, maybe Joseph knew that, maybe he didn't. But right here at this moment in time, he understood God's sovereignty, God's providence, and the fact that God works even the bad things for good. And he does this through his supreme power. His supreme power. He is God Almighty. Write this down, 345 times in the NIV. God is referred to as Almighty, 345 times. He is omnipotent. That means He is all-powerful. He is Almighty. 
So we see by his sovereign power, he takes bad and he works it for good. But not only by his supreme power, we see his sovereign power. I know we talk a lot about God's sovereignty. His supreme power is his omnipotence, the fact that he is almighty. We see also that the Lord is referred to 297 times in Scripture. People get on me all the time. Why do you place such an emphasis on the sovereignty of God? Because 297 times, 297 times, He is referred to as Sovereign Lord. 297 times. Did you know this? The Bible in Genesis starts with a lesson on the sovereignty of God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In all of creation, those six days of creation, and then the fact that God rested when He really didn't have to rest to give us a model, He chose to do that to show us what we ought to do. But those six days of creation, God sovereignly spoke into existence everything that you know. Everything that you know. He sovereignly spoke it into existence because He is sovereign in His power. Just as He is supreme in His power. 297 times He is referred to as Sovereign Lord. Psalm 103.19 says this, The Lord has established His throne in heaven and His kingdom rules over all. He established His throne. Did you know this? There is no other throne. There is no other throne that has been established by the one who sits upon the throne. Everyone else inherits their throne. Throughout the ages, people inherited a throne from someone else or they conquered another nation and then took their throne. It says this, He established His throne. In eternity past, before there was anything, He has always been, He always will be, He has established Himself, He is sovereign over even Himself. We establish His throne and His kingdom rules over something. Y'all want to read that again? His kingdom rules over all. So we see that by His supreme power, He's working all things for the good. Why? Because He can. He's the only one who can take something bad and make it good. Look at your life. What was it before Christ sovereignly invaded your life? He's working it for good, that which was once sinful and wicked and bad. And His sovereign, his sovereign power allows Him to do these things. Acts chapter 4, if you don't necessarily yet believe that He is in control of everything and sovereign. Verse 27 of Acts chapter 4, referencing Jesus and His arrest and His conviction and crucifixion, says this, Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in, the, in this city to conspire against your holy, holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed. What's what verse 28 says? They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Did you notice the only reason that Pilate did what he did? The only reason that the Jews did what they did, the decision that Herod made, the crucifixion happened. The only reason that those Roman soldiers were even created 
was because they did what his power and will had decided beforehand should happen. We can find great comfort and we can find great peace in God's sovereign power. Again, he is either sovereign over all or he is not sovereign at all. And I want to help you out. Everybody loves to quote this. Even people who don't necessarily believe in scriptural sovereignty will quote this verse. If he is not sovereign and in control of every situation, he cannot work your bad for the good. He doesn't have sovereign power. He's limited in his power. And if he's limited in his power, whatever's bad is bad, and whatever's good is good, and you just take it, because that's what it is. Aren't you thankful that's not truth according to the Word of God? That he is sovereign in his power. So by his supreme power, by his sovereign power, he is working everything, all things, for the good. Not only by his supreme power and sovereign power, how about his supernatural power? Supernatural is this. It's beyond the natural. He works things for good when you can't. He works things for good when it's impossible. Aren't you thankful that we serve a God who is able to call the things that aren't as if they were? That's what is said in Scripture about Abraham's God. Abraham knew a God who was able to call things that aren't as if they were. With the spoken word, he speaks with authority, he speaks with power, he speaks with sovereignty, he speaks with supernatural ability to do things that blow the human mind away. Stop and think about that for a moment. It's supernatural power. You can only think about it for a, for a moment before you say, I'll never understand it. Because in your humanity, in this world we live in, in your, in your human minds, you can't. You can't attain such knowledge, such power. Be blown away by it without understanding it. He works supernaturally. If he doesn't have the ability to work supernaturally, again, you're stuck in a bad situation, aren't you? Isaiah says it like this in chapter 40 of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 40. Go ahead and turn there because it's long. Can we read it? I was just going to quote it for you. We're going to turn over there. I just want to describe to you what the Scripture says about the God that we serve. And I don't want to shortchange this. So we're going to read it all. Isaiah 40, verse 10. See, the Sovereign Lord comes with power. And his arm rules for him. See, his reward is with him. And his recompense accompanies him. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms. And he carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? Or with the breath of his hand marked off the heavens? Who has held the dust of the earth in a basket? Or weighed the mountains on the scales in the hills in, in a balance? Isaiah is giving us a picture of our God's power. He goes on and he says, Who has understood the mind of the Lord and instructed him as his counselor? Let me just go ahead and answer that rhetorical, no one. Whom did the Lord consult to enlighten him? And who taught him the right way? Who was it that taught him knowledge or showed him the path of understanding? 
Surely the nations are like a drop in a bucket. They're regarded as dust on the scales. He weighs the islands as though they were fine dust. I want you to see that picture there that is being created through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit as Isaiah is pinning this. Let me just tell you what he said. He said, Hawaii, little grains of sand. Australia, a piece of dust. He goes on, he says, Lebanon is not sufficient for altar fires, nor its animals enough for burnt offerings. Before him, all the nations are as nothing. They are regarded by him as worthless and less than nothing. Everything shrinks in comparison to his worth. He goes on and says this, To whom then will you compare God? What image will you compare him to? Right? Because their problem was just the same as our problem, constant idolatry. As for an idol, a craftsman cast it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and fashions silver chains for it. A man too poor to present such an offering selects wood that will not rot. He looks for a skilled craftsman to set up an idol that will not topple. Do you not know? Have you not heard? We're on verse 21. Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood since the earth was founded? He sits enthroned above the circle of the earth. That was long before they knew the earth was actually a sphere. They thought it was flat until they came back and read this and said, maybe there's something to the Word of God. And its people are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a canopy and spreads them out like a tent to live in. He brings princes to naught and reduces the rulers of this world to nothing. No sooner are they planted, no sooner are they sown, no sooner do they take root in the ground. Then he blows on them and they wither and a whirlwind sweeps them away like chaff. To whom will you compare me or who is my equal, says the Holy One. Lift your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all these? He who brings out the starry host one by one and calls them each by name. Because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and complain, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, my cause is disregarded by my God? He's saying, why are you whining? Do you think he who made all of this, who counts the stars in heaven, who is capable and powerful to do anything, you think he's really forgotten about you? Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall, but those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not grow faint. You know what Isaiah just said? The God who created all that stuff, who I've been talking about to you and who you ought to know about, who you have forgotten about chasing your little wimpy idols. He says that God will give you strength when you look to him. He'll work all things to the good. Why? He's got the power to do everything. He has supernatural power. Don't forget that when you talk to and talk about your God. He is a God of supernatural ability. The God who created the heavens and the earth with a spoken word. That same God promises right here, Romans 8, verse 28, that He's working all things for the good. He's working all things for the good. Now before you say, well, how can He do that? How can He hold islands in His hand like grains of sand? How can He know everything before it ever happens? How can He speak 
everything that we see and everything that we know into existence by His power. We can't fully understand that, can we? But can we fully trust in that? You bet. And it is the Spirit who gives us that confidence to trust in God's power. All things are being powerfully worked for the good. Any God, write this down, any God who does less than this due to some type of limitation, God has to wait until I do something before He reacts or acts. <laughs> Not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible is sovereign, He's powerful, and He's in control of all. Any God who has to, because of some limitation, cease to be the God that we just read about in Isaiah is not the God of Scripture. Our God is powerful, and we can be confident in His power. In fact, His Holy Spirit is constantly reminding us of the confidence that we can have in the power of God. When we read Romans 8.28, we know that He's working all things for the good. Why? Because He can. Can you? No. Can anyone else you know work everything for the good? No. Can He? Absolutely. He does as He pleases, when He pleases, and only as He pleases. Just as Arthur Pink once said. But we continue in this tonight. We can have great confidence in God's provision. Providence, excuse me. Confidence in God's power. And thirdly, confidence in our position. Confidence in our position. He goes on, he says, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love Him. God works all things for the good to those who love Him. This comes down to confidence in our position. This is why we preach and this is why we teach assurance of salvation. And I promise you this, the Spirit inside of you teaches assurance of salvation. He wants you to have assurance. Just as John, led by the Holy Spirit, says in his first letter, I write these things so that you may know that you have eternal life. It's God's will that you have assurance. And the Spirit is indwelling you guys who are here tonight, who are believers, giving you that confidence in your position. Those who love Him. Of course, that's a reference to the redeemed. Did you know you cannot love Him unless He first loves you? Isn't that what John taught us? Isn't that what Scripture teaches us? I love Him because He what? He first loved me. We know this. I can have confidence in my position because of the things we've talked about in Romans. I can have confidence that I'm a righteous child of God in my standing. I'm in right standing with the Holy God. Why? Because He said that. He said I am. He declared that. How did He declare that? Romans chapter 3. Let's do a review. Verse 21, it says, But now righteousness from God apart from the law has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in His blood, and He did this to demonstrate His justice because in His forbearance He had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. And he did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. If you're here today and you have faith in Jesus, let me just tell you this, you've been justified. That faith was a gift from God, according to what Ephesians chapter 2 tells us. That we receive that gift only by the grace of God and because we have received that gift, 
That faith has been credited to us as righteousness. I can have confidence, and the Spirit reminds me of the confidence that I have. My confidence in the fact that I am a righteous child of God is not because of the confidence I have in myself. It is the Spirit who constantly reminds us that without Christ, without the grace of God, without the cross, we're nothing. Without those things, the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ, His finished work, we're nothing. We're not children of God. Unlike the liberals think that we're all just children of God trying to find our own way. No. Apart from Christ, you are a child of sin and a child of Satan and you are on your way to an eternity in hell separated from the goodness of God. But in Christ, we can be confident in our position that we are righteous children because the righteousness of God has been provided for us apart from the law, any works that we can do, apart from anything that we could ever muster in our own strength. This is the righteousness from God that the prophets and the law testified to. And that righteousness came through Christ and through faith in Christ so that we can have confidence in our position. If you're a child of God here today, watch this. It's all you're ever going to be. And isn't it a good thing? You're never going to revert back to being anything less than a child of God. Why? Because the sovereign God who we just talked about, we just read about in so many references, through His sovereign power, through His sovereign decree, has declared you righteous, a child of God. You will never be anything else. God has already declared it. He decreed it in eternity past. It came to be at the appointed time. You are His, a righteous child. Not only are you a righteous child, those, he says, who love him, not only are they righteous children, they are loved children. As I've already said, the only reason that you love is because he first loved you. I want to help you out. This is going to revolutionize your Christian life. Are you listening? He's never going to stop loving you. He's never going to love you any more than He loves you right now. He's never going to love you any less. Please pay attention when I tell you this. God the Father loves you with the same love that He has for the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the love that you have received in Christ. Let that blow you away for a second. Get yourself together. You, you big guys who are holding back the tears, let them flow. You don't deserve it. We've already talked about it a hundred times in the study. It's grace. And where would we be without His grace? And we can have confidence in our position. I am a righteous child, but I am a loved child. Why is that so important? Because doesn't the devil want me to actually really believe that if I do something bad, God's going to love me a little less? That would be the case if my righteousness wasn't secured in Christ. I was earning my righteousness along the way. How many of you are thankful you're not earning your righteousness along the way? But I am loved because God sovereignly decided to love me. In fact, as we have all read many times in eternity past, He loved me. Whom He foreknew, He did also predestined to conform to the image of His Son. 
We've talked about it over and over again. Foreknowledge is not God's ability to see into time. God is not limited by time. Foreknowledge is the fact that before time, before the foundations of the earth, God loved His children. And everything in their life was sovereignly orchestrated, just as we've seen, by His providence. For that moment in time that He allowed you by His grace to believe and to get in on the deal personally. Aren't you thankful that we are loved children of God before the foundations of the earth? You know what that assures me of? It assures me that I can never mess it up because God had already made His sovereign mind up to love me in spite of me. And He'll never do anything less than love me. I will always be a loved child of God. In fact, when Paul addressed the Romans, if you will remember with me, all the way back in the beginning, verse 7 of chapter 1, he said this, to all in Rome who are loved by God, and called to be saints. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. He didn't say, you guys keeping up with the standard? If you're keeping up with the standard, you're still loved by God. He said, no, those of you who have been called, you are loved by God. You are here today and you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. You have been saved by the sovereign grace and the sovereign hand of God. You have received that gift of salvation that He and He alone can give. You're loved by God. I don't know about you, but there are many times in my life that I have struggled with this principle. Because we are so performance-based as people. We love based on performance. If your daddy loved you based on performance, he was only proud of you when you got everything perfect you have a tendency of thinking that's how our Heavenly Father works. That is absolutely not how our Heavenly Father works. He loved you in eternity past. He loved you in spite of you. Before you ever committed your first sin, He knew about everyone that you ever would commit. And in Christ, He loves you in spite of you. And He will always love you in spite of you. The Spirit is constantly reminding us of, of the confidence that we have in our position. I am a righteous child. I am a loved child. And because of Christ, watch this, not only am I a righteous child and I'm a loved child, I'm a secure child. I'm a secure child. Look what Jude chapter 1, he says this, chapter 1, the only chapter, verse 1 of the only chapter. Jude says this, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James, to those who have been called, who are loved by God the Father, and he goes on to say, and kept by Jesus Christ. We are not only loved, we are kept. And we're kept by Jesus Christ. We are secure children. First Peter. Peter says this, chapter 1, verse 3. Praise be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Many of you know this one. We'll reiterate it again. In His great mercy, He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish. If you don't have that word never highlighted and underlined in your Bible, you need to do so now. He says it will never perish, spoil, or fade. Here's this word again. Underline this one. Kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. 
In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief and all kinds of trials. These have come, so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. He's working all things for the good. He goes on and he says, As though you have not seen him, you love him, and even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. How are you receiving that at this time? Through sanctification, through the Holy Spirit, doing what He and He alone does as He indwells a believer. He's giving you confidence in your position. You are a righteous child. You are a loved child. You are a secure child. It is kept for you by Christ. Peter says, through the power of God, there is nothing that is going to change your secure position in Christ. I'm thankful that we can believe the Holy Word of God and we don't have to believe the traditions of men. Because many false teachings, because of the traditions of men, tell us that, well, you're only good as long as you're doing everything right. The Armenian ideology that says, I can choose Jesus one minute, reject Jesus another minute, or I can choose Jesus and then send my way out of salvation by being too bad as if God didn't know already every single sin that I was going to commit and atone for me beforehand. I don't really understand that. It's as if God is sitting on his throne and I mess up. And, and in some people's mind, God goes, oh, no, what has Kirk done? No, it doesn't work like that. He's already known every single thing that I'm going to do, period. And Jesus Christ, 2,000 years ago, on a cross, atoned for every single one of my sins. We covered this when we talked about justification. I just want to give you that little reminder in case you have slipped from the truth. I am confident because of the Holy Spirit that I am a righteous child of God. I am a loved child of God. And I am a secure child of God. When we get this, we can finally walk in great assurance and confidence. And we understand that. There are many people who have been saved for years who have no security, because at one point in time somebody told them, well, you're saved by grace, but you've got to do works to keep it. That's absolutely, positively false teaching. It is not in Scripture. You have an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept for you in heaven. Now, unless somebody can go up to heaven and pry your inheritance out of the sovereign, almighty hand of God and take it away from Him, you're pretty secure. So be confident of your security in Christ. The Spirit is constantly moving us toward that. I promise you this. People come to me and they say, I don't believe in eternal security. And I say, I'll say this quickly. I don't believe you study the Scripture. And they look at you all crossways. Because I promise you this, if you study the Scripture long enough, diligently enough, you understand what even in the Old Testament they understood, that what God does, He does forever. You're secure in Him. Be confident of this. The Apostle Paul said, He who has begun a good work in you will carry that out until you blow it, buddy. Is that what Scripture says? Does anybody know how to finish that? Be confident. It's he who has begun this good work and you will carry it unto completion. 
He is the one doing the work. It is the Spirit inside of you who is reminding you of that, giving you confidence in your position, not because you earned it and you're worthy of it. None of us are worthy of the position that we've been given. Position that we have been given as a child, a righteous child, a loved child, and a secure child is not because of our good works. It's because of the grace of God. Because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Because of God's desire to sovereignly save us according to His will and His decree. That's why. We move to the last thing. Or do you want to go back and talk about that one some more? Because I could talk about that one all night long. Let's move along for the sake of time. I'm going to try my best to get this last one in in five minutes. I'm not going to make any promises or guarantees. We've talked about these things to a great extent many times, and so we are going to talk about them again. He goes on and he says, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love Him, who have been called according to His purpose. That, that word there, called, is a very, very important word. Confidence in God's calling and purpose. He says, called according to His purpose. Believers have been called. If you're a believer here today, you have been called by a sovereign God into God's purpose. Into His will. That purpose is determined and that purpose is according to God's will. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. But we ought always to thank God for you, brothers, loved by the Lord, because from the beginning, y'all pay attention to this, God chose you to be saved through the sanctifying work of the Spirit. What confidence we have. God chose you to be saved through the sanctifying work of the Spirit. That's what we're talking about. And through belief in the truth. He called you to this through our Gospel. It was through the preaching of the Gospel, hearing the Word, that you were brought to life, that your ears spiritually were opened up where you could hear the truth and believe the truth for the very first time, all the work of God, that you might share in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. What did he say there? He said it very clearly that you were called into His purpose or according to His purpose. And what was His purpose? To share in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't the purpose of salvation to bring us into the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ because we were separated from the glory? Remember, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. But those of you who have been called have been, been reestablished in your purpose according to the will of God. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 10. I'm not careful, I'm going to start preaching. It says in verse 10, And the God of all grace who called you to His eternal glory in Christ. He called you. Did you beg Him? Did you ask Him? Is it dependent upon you? He called you to His eternal glory in Christ. After you have suffered a little while, will Himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. Oh, the day where we are glorified to a position of strong, firm, and steadfast. Because I know this. In this lifetime, I am not strong. I am not firm, and I am not steadfast. I am weak on my best day, but when I am weak, He, as the Apostle Paul said, He's strong. When I am weak, I am strong. Why did Paul say that? Because he knew that his strength rested in the hope that he had in Christ. 
He says, called according to his purpose, according to God's will, by God's will. Did you know this? It's God's will if you're called, not yours. Don't believe me. John says it like this in his gospel, if I could remind you one more time. Chapter 6, verse 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. How many people can come? How many people did John just say can come on their own accord and push a sovereign God into a corner and say, you got to do what I'm telling you, you got to do. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up at the last day. Raise him up to what? Resurrected, glorified existence. He will resurrect you, raise you up to share in his glory in the last day. We see that we have confidence from the Spirit in God's calling and purpose. According to God's will, by God's will, it is His will that allows us to be called. Galatians chapter 1, verse 15. But when God, who set me apart from birth, huh, and called me by His grace, was pleased, to reveal His Son in me so that I might preach Him among the Gentiles. I did not consult any man. Can I tell you this? That includes Him. Paul didn't have to even consult himself, did he? That moment in time, while he was minding his own business on the road to Damascus, God interrupted Paul, or at that time, Saul's fought religious duty in life. He allowed him to realize that he had set him apart from birth. Thank God's providence. His unseen sovereign hand wasn't working in the life of the Apostle Paul. What a coincidence that he was so mightily influenced in his life to know the ways of the Hebrew and to know the ways of the Roman so that he could be the Apostle to the Gentiles. Huh? Interesting. What a coincidence. No, God sovereignly set him apart just as He sovereignly set you apart for His purpose. And then He calls you by His grace to share in that purpose. What a joy it is to be able to share in God's sovereign, preordained plan for our life through His grace, through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. We see that we can have confidence in God's calling and purpose in our life by, according to His will. Galatians. Paul says it, says it again in 1 Corinthians, verse 9 of chapter 1, as he refers again to being called God who has called you into fellowship with His Son, Jesus Christ. Our Lord is faithful. It's funny to me that most of his letters start with an address to the church, and that address to the church reminds them every time that they have been sovereignly called by God into fellowship with Jesus Christ. He wants them to remember this is not about you, but it's all about Him. It's about His grace. You have been called because of Him. By His will, according to His will. In order that we obey His will. In order that we obey His will. That's His purpose. To obey His will. To become more like Christ. Until we are ultimately glorified. So we see that we can have confidence in God's calling and His purpose according to God's will, by God's will, and in order to obey God's will. Philippians says this, chapter 2, verse 13, For it is God who 
For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to His good pleasure. It is God who does that. It's not you. I promise you this, anything good in you, if it's truly good, is God. And He worked it, He wrought it, He made it, He caused it. Anything that is bad in you, as a believer, He's working it for the good. You can have confidence in that. That the Spirit is continually molding you and making you more like Christ. Why? Because we know that He foreknew us, He predestined us, and He predestined us to conform to the image of His Son. That is His purpose. We are becoming like Christ in our lifetime through our obedience, and we will ultimately, through glorification, share in the glory of Christ for all eternity. We've already talked about that many times. And we can have great confidence. Great confidence in God's calling and purpose through the power of the Holy Spirit. 2 Timothy chapter 1. Paul says this in verse 8. He says, So do not be ashamed to testify about our Lord or ashamed of me, His prisoner. But join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God who saved us and called us to a holy life. He called us to a holy life. That's the obedience that we're talking about. Not because of anything we have done, for sure, but because of His own purpose and grace. This grace was given us in Jesus Christ. Watch this. Before the beginning of time. He goes on to say, But it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love Him, who have been called according to His purpose. Our calling and purpose is established by God's will. Watch this. Through His grace alone. The Holy Spirit gives all of us who are believers, and dwelt by the Holy Spirit here today, He gives us great confidence in that calling and in that purpose. So We see as we finish up tonight, Romans 8, 28, this is one powerful verse that oftentimes is taken out of context and misused. In its proper context, it is a verse that I hope tonight that you see, coupled with the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit, will give you great confidence. Great confidence, great assurance, great security. Confidence in God's providence. Confidence in God's power. Confidence in our position. Confidence in God's calling and purpose in and on your life. Spirit gives the children of God great and continual confidence and assurance. I don't know about you, but I'm thankful coming off of last week knowing that part of the Christian life and sanctification is struggling, groaning. But even in the midst of that, as we groan, Paul, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, gives us a great promise of confidence. As you groan, look at it in its context. We can know that in all things God works for the good of those who love Him, who have been called according to His purpose. Have you been called according to His purpose? Have you surrendered your life to Jesus? Martin Luther says it like this. He says, The Holy Spirit is no skeptic. And the things He has written in our hearts are not doubts or opinions, but assertions. Sure 
and more certain than sense and life itself. Surer and more certain than sense and life itself. I hope you're thankful for the confidence that the Holy Spirit gives us in Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth. God, may this truth set us free. Free to live and to walk in the confidence that your Holy Spirit gives us. Confidence in your providence, in your power, in the position that you have allowed us to be in as your righteous children. Confidence in the calling and the purpose you have placed on the lives of all believers who are called by your name. God, I pray for each man who's here tonight. I pray that this confidence would permeate their life, their walk. That it would change the way that they view you, that they view the gospel, and how they live every single moment of their life to bring you glory. We give you all the praise for it in Jesus' name. Amen.